So our second reading is from page, uh, on page 1250, so Revelation chapter 20. So this is the second in a little mini-series of two, uh, looking at the theme of crime and punishment. So last week we looked at sin, and this week we're looking at the sentence, so the punishment. So page 1250, Revelation 20, verse 11. And we'll be looking at lots of different verses in the talk, but this is, um, this is one of them. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What happens when we die? What then? In a recent survey, a survey of 10 people here on West India Quay on Friday afternoon, the answers were uh, varied pretty widely. Uh, One, in no particular order, one, our soul comes back and is reincarnated in a different body. Two, uh, death is the end, we rot. Three, we go to heaven or hell. Four, our soul goes on a spiritual journey. Five, I've got no idea. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Six, I'm only in my 30s, so I don't think about death. What does happen when we die? Can we know? Does it matter? Yes, we can, and it really does. The Bible says, Hebrews 9.27, and all the references are in the footnotes inside your service sheets where the outline is. Hebrews 9.27, the Bible says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. What does that mean? Uh, What will happen? Where does that leave us now? What hope is there? These are the kind of big and important questions which are our focus this morning. Last week we looked at the charges against us. We saw that we are sinners. We saw that we have abused God's love and we've trampled God's glory and we've betrayed God's rule. We've broken God's law. We've trashed God's creation. We've corrupted God's goodness. Those were the charges last week. And we were saying that life now is the preliminary hearing. And we asked that question, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? And we saw last week that if we plead guilty and we turn from our wrongdoing to Christ, we receive a royal pardon. All the charges dropped. Amazing. But we saw last week that if we plead not guilty, the case goes to trial. In God's court, when Christ returns at the final judgment. Our second reading just now was a vision of that end time trial. 
Revelation 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So the dead will be raised to appear at this end-time trial. Uh, Jesus called it the resurrection of judgment in John 5. This heavenly court has unlimited resources. It's got all the evidence, and it's got plenty of time. But it won't need long to establish our guilt. If you think you're a good person, do go back and listen to last week's talk. The verdict of the court will be clear, it will be final, guilty as charged. Now, in a court of law, um, if you are found guilty, what happens is that you are then sentenced, and the judge decides what the sentence will be, the punishment. Could be a fine, uh, could be prison, could be the death penalty in some countries. What will be the sentence at the final judgment? Revelation 20.15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The sentence is passed and swiftly carried out. There's no appeal. Last week, we learned that we are all sinners and that Christ came into the world to save sinners. But from what? So what did he come to save us from? Well, from this, from the lake of fire. Churches used to be clear on this, um, but nowadays the message seems to have got a little bit lost. And the gospel seems to have been sort of remarketed for the modern consumer. Along the lines of, what problems are you facing now? Jesus is the answer. He can save you. Do you uh, lack peace? Do you lack purpose? Does life feel empty? Does it feel meaningless? Do you struggle with addictions or with difficult relationships? Jesus can save you. And for some that's appealing, but many other people say, well, thank you, but my life is fine. Or as somebody said to me the other day, I create my own meaning. Now, Jesus can and he does help us with our present problems, but there is a much, much bigger problem, which all of us face. And it's not the lack of meaning, it is the lake of fire. That's what we all face. And that is what we ultimately need saving from. It's what Jesus called hell. Now this is a really, really hard topic on a beautiful sunny morning. Hell is no joke, the prospect is utterly terrifying, and that is our second point. We may find this subject awkward, Um, embarrassing. And if you're here for the first time, you might be thinking, what on earth have I walked into here? But Jesus spoke a lot about hell, and what he described is terrifying. If we are not afraid of hell, we have simply not understood it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he said, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said that it's better to cut off your hand or your foot than to go into hell. He's saying do anything to avoid it. Jesus spoke very plainly about hell in language that we can understand. All of us can understand. And so first, we mustn't obfuscate, which means to obscure. 
using long words, like obfuscate. The problem we face is not grave eschatological ramifications. The problem is hell. But secondly, also, we mustn't speculate. So the medieval church was especially guilty of this, letting their imaginations go into overdrive, these lurid depictions of hell in paintings and in writings. Let's just stick to what the Bible says. So, how does Jesus describe it? Four things on the sheet there. First, he speaks of fire. Matthew 5, he talks about the hell of fire. Matthew 9, uh, Mark 9, to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And the word translated hell in those two verses and elsewhere is a Greek word, Gehenna. Um, Gehenna, or in Hebrew, Gehenom. It means the Hinnom Valley. And the Hinnom Valley was just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now, what had this valley, the Hinnom Valley, what had that got to do with fire? Well, in the Old Testament, the Hinnom Valley was where people sacrificed their children in the fire to false gods. And God said that in judgment, he would turn it into a mass grave. So Jesus used this valley as a picture of hell, a place of judgment, of slaughter, of fire. Back in 2001, uh, some of you may remember the animal virus pandemic that hit the UK. More than 6 million pigs, cattle, sheep were slaughtered. And we had these huge piles of um, animal carcasses that were burning across the countryside. I put a picture up on the screen. You may remember these kind of scenes all across the UK. It's that kind of image that Jesus uses of hell. But the difference is that in hell, uh, people are not corpses, they live on. So Matthew 13, Jesus speaks of people being thrown into the fiery furnace where he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that speaks of ongoing existence. And that's confirmed, isn't it, by our first reading, the parable of the rich man in Luke 16. So in hell he cries out, I am in anguish in this flame. And so the lake of fire in our second reading in Revelation 20, it must be a lived experience. Now, we might say, well, is this literal or is it a picture of something? Well, certainly in the, in the Old Testament, um, fire is a picture of God's anger. Nahum 1 says, who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. But even if it is a picture, a metaphor, it is no less horrific for that. It's saying that hell is a place of anguish under God's wrath. Second, Jesus speaks of darkness. He calls it the outer darkness, in which place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, 2 Peter 2 refers to the gloom of utter darkness. Imagine, imagine life in a place of endless night where the sun never rises, like being in some dark underground prison. How depressing how hopeless, a place of sorrow, of regret, of anguish, of despair, of fear, of anger. I mean, even in life now, darkness has, it has these kind of associations, doesn't it? We're afraid of the dark. Uh, when life is, a, is its very worst, when we're at rock bottom, we speak, don't we, of, of dark days, or the darkness closing in, or there's no light at the end of the tunnel. 
Such, Jesus says, is hell. Thirdly, Jesus spoke about hell as a place of exclusion. So being on the outside. So he pictured people being shut out of a house. And they're knocking at the door, but they're not allowed in, in Luke 13. He spoke about people seeing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves shut out. So shut out from the feast, from the party. Sometimes uh, unbelievers talk about hell as being a party, and they say, you know, all my mates will be there, we're going to have a fantastic time. But Jesus said the party's in God's kingdom. And hell is being shut out of that, so left out in the cold, being excluded. Imagine being homeless at Christmas time. And you walk the cold streets in the dark, you're on your own, you go past houses that are are full of light inside, full of warmth. People inside are having a great time, they're enjoying friendship and food and fun and laughter and love. And you're outside. Well, Jesus is saying, hell is like that. It's, it's being shut out of the kingdom. And again, in these uh, descriptions of exclusion, we get this phrase coming up. He says, in that place, there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. In Revelation 22, it's being outside the heavenly city in which is the tree of life. And ultimately, it's being shut out from, the relation, from relationship with God, from his presence of blessing. So when people are sentenced, they hear the chilling words from the Lord. He says, depart from from me. So it's exclusion fourth. Jesus spoke about hell as a place of destruction. So Matthew 7, he said, the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The broad road to destruction. Destruction which is ongoing, so 2 Thessalonians 1 says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So destruction clearly does not mean annihilation. Life continues but is destroyed. In the same way, um, if someone is serving a life sentence in prison, they might say, I've lost everything and my life has been destroyed. They still exist, but they have lost everything good. And so hell will be the loss of everything good. All blessing. Everything that makes life worth living. Friendship, love, joy, peace, hope. All gone. Jesus said, whoever would save his life now will lose it then. Mark 8. So it's a place of destruction, of total loss. This is where everybody is heading apart from Christ. This is what Jesus came to save us from. If we're not afraid of hell, we haven't understood it. It is utterly terrifying and it is eternal. Depart from me, you cursed, Jesus said in Matthew 25, into the eternal fire. And so the king says in the the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus ends that parable by saying this. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So eternal punishment and eternal life are contrasted there. 
by Jesus. Just as eternal life is life going on forever, so eternal punishment is forever. Hell is a place, Jesus said, where in Mark 9 he said, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It never ends. And that is a very, very scary thought. Revelation 14 says, the smoke of their torment torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. Whatever we go through in this life, now, however bad it is, we always have the comfort, we always have the hope, don't we, that it's going to end. It's not going to last forever. You know, we have a bad day, or we have a bad few months, or even we have a bad few years, but we say, well, it won't last forever. But Jesus says, hell will. There's no way out. There's no end. There's no hope. In, uh, in John's, John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, that we often sing, we sing, don't we, about life in heaven. And we have that line towards the end where it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But so in hell, when they've been there 10,000 years, in the gloom of darkness, weeping, and gnashing teeth. The same awaits, and again, forever. Now that's what Jesus said. Um, other people deny this. The official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that you go to purgatory, which is a sort of temporary hell, to pay for your sins. Other, other people claim that the punishment is uh, for sin is annihilation, extinction, Um, either immediately or after a period of time. Uh, Still others claim that immortality is conditional, and so if you are denied access to the tree of life, you just die in the end. Now, emotionally, we will feel drawn to these ideas. I certainly am myself. Emotionally, we are drawn to these ideas because the thought of endless hell, it feels too much to cope with, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's unimaginably horrific. But it is what Jesus teaches. And if anyone knows, it's him. And so I take it this is reality. But is it fair? Is it fair? To us it may seem just so over the top, so extreme. The severity of the punishment, the eternity of the punishment. We think, well, does that actually fit the crime that we looked at last week? And the Bible says, well, yes, just, hell is just. It is just. God's judgment is fair. Paul said in Acts 17, he said, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Romans 2 says the day of wrath is when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is a just judge. He judges justly. He judges righteously. In fact, one psalm says that righteousness and justice are the very foundation of his throne. Do you remember um, back in the Old Testament, Abraham asked the question, he said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, do what is just? And the implied answer is, well, of course he will. Of course he will. Revelation 16 says, yes, Lord, 
God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So all of those verses are saying, it's unthinkable that God would do wrong. It's unthinkable that God would not be just, that he would not act fairly. God hates injustice. And so one day he will overthrow all wrongdoing, all evil. So from our perspective now, we may feel, well, this his punishment of sin and sinners, it may feel over the top. But that is because we do not see sin the way that God sees sin. And the way that God sees sin is the right way because our perspective is distorted. Of course it is. We can't see clearly how terrible sin is because we ourselves are sinners. We've got a conflict of interests. But God, the Holy One, the righteous judge, he sees things as they are. Hell is fair and it is fitting. We may feel that eternity in hell that could not possibly be a fitting punishment for a few years of sinning. But actually, if you think about it, in law, even now, the length of a sentence bears no relation to how long it took to commit the crime. How long does it take to murder somebody? A split second to pull the trigger, to to stick in the blade. But the fitting just punishment for that split second is not a split second in prison, but a lifetime behind bars. So hell is just, it is just, but it is not popular. Uh, Even in many churches, some churches just don't teach it, uh, they skip over it. Um, As in the, the annual carol service from King's College Chapel in Cambridge, um, traditional readings, Isaiah 11, chapter, uh, verse 4 of Isaiah 11, speaks about God's judgment on the wicked. It's just taken out. They just edit it out. Um, so some just skip over it. Other churches actively deny hell. They teach against it. Well, why this silence? Why this denial? Well, firstly, I guess fairly obviously, because hell is not pleasant. Uh, people want teaching which is pleasant. Uh, which is positive, which is affirming, and hell is definitely not that. It is not telling us what we want to hear. We don't like the idea of punishment. We don't like the idea of a God who gets angry. Some people say, well, that's not the kind of God God I want to believe in, a God who gets angry. Uh, But it's the God Jesus believed in, and it's the God who is actually there. And it's actually the God that we need. You see, we may may say, well, we want a God who just loves and accepts everybody. Uh, We want a universe where love wins, as the title of one book puts it, and where no one is condemned. But what kind of universe would that actually be? Um, A universe in which justice was never done. What kind of God would that be who never dealt with evil? As one writer puts it, we need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will once for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. The problem, though, is that the evil is not just out there, but it's in here, it's in us. In the Old Testament, God's true prophets, they warned that his judgment was coming. One of the marks of the false prophets was that they denied that judgment was coming. 
to their message, the false prophets, was peace, peace, where there is no peace, Jeremiah 6. See, all will be fine, they said, don't worry about it. But they were wrong. As are the false prophets today, who tell people what their itching ears want to hear. So hell is unpopular because it is not pleasant, and, secondly, because it is not present. That is to say that the modern consumer is more interested in now, not in what happens when we die. Life expectancy in this country now, 78 for men, 82 for women. Good standard of living for many people. People are more focused on this life than the life to come. And historically, uh, the following has been observed. It's been said that in the 19th century, we lost creation. That is to say, we lost confidence in a biblical view of creation, of where we've come from, so with the rise of Darwinism, attacking creation. That was the 19th century. In the 20th century, we lost hell. That is, we lost confidence in a biblical view of where we're going, and the reason was that for that was the suffering of the world wars, and especially the Holocaust, that the concern shifted from hell in eternity to hell on earth and dealing with that. So for these reasons, hell is not popular, but it is real nonetheless, and we are fools if we ignore the Bible's warnings that God will judge. God's track record in biblical history is pretty sobering, isn't it, when it comes to judgment. If you think of his judgment on Adam and Eve, the flood in Noah's day, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the exile, the judgment on the nations, the first century fall of Jerusalem, the cross of Jesus. I mean, if we want proof that God means it when he says that he will judge sin, we just need to look at the cross. Because there, Jesus suffered hell for us. And his resurrection proves that he is the end-time judge. So biblical history, judgment is also a central theme in biblical prophecy. The Old Testament prophets continually warned, didn't they, of the coming judgment, the day of the Lord. We saw that in our Malachi series, for example. Malachi 4, behold the day is coming, burning like an oven. And these kind of warnings featured large in the ministry of biblical preachers. John the Baptist, for example, saying, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus himself, as we've seen. Paul, God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When Paul shared the gospel with Governor Felix, this is in in Acts 24, when he shared the gospel with Governor Felix, he spoke to him of the coming judgment, and we read this. Felix was alarmed. Does our message that we share, does it alarm people? Does it make them afraid? It should do. If it doesn't, is it because we're not being open, we're not being honest about the coming judgment? So have we sort of buried that in the small print? If the Bible was a newspaper, the coming judgment would be a large front page headline. But what is the point of warning people? Well, the point is that hell 
is avoidable. God wants us to avoid hell. Ezekiel 18, God says, Repent. Why will you die? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. That is God's heart. That is God's desire. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, God our Savior, it says, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's God's desire, and that is why he's taken action. That's why he sent Jonah even to wicked Nineveh to warn them. That's why he sent Jesus to die for us. John 3, God so loved the world that he sent, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. So Jesus endured hell for us so that we won't have to. Jesus, who, 1 Thess 1 says, Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. So how do we avoid hell? How do we get our names in the book of life, which in our second reading we saw was the only way of escaping the lake of fire? How do we get our names into that book? We saw this last week, didn't we? The three A's. Do you remember those from last week? First A, accept. Accept that we are sinners. Second A, acknowledge. Acknowledge that Jesus is the rescuer ruler God has sent. Third A, ask. Ask for royal pardon and new life. If we have done that, we should be full of thanksgiving to God every day for saving us from the hell which we deserve. We need to feel the truth of hell and we need to feel the wonder of our own escape from it. Sometimes people say, is fear of hell a good motive for turning to Christ? Well, it's not the only one, but it's a pretty sensible one, isn't it? If hell is real. I mean, hell puts things in perspective. For example, it may be that something at the moment is holding us back from going God's way. Uh, maybe there's um, some sin that we don't want to give up. A good question to ask is this. Hold it in your hand, this thing, that you don't want to give up, and say, is it worth me going to hell for this? Am I really willing to pay that eternal price for a few years of this, whatever the thing is which we're holding on to? Will we still think it was worth it looking back a million years from now? Jesus said in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life in eternity? The prospect of hell focuses the mind. So we need to make sure we avoid hell and we need to help others avoid it too by warning them. We mustn't forget that apart from Christ, people are going to hell. And if we love them, we will risk social awkwardness to tell them, to warn them, to share the good news about rescue through Jesus with them. But, lastly there, how do we stop all this becoming overwhelming? That's our final point. Once we grasp the reality of hell, it can feel pretty overwhelming, can't it? Knowing what we know is a heavy burden. And the weight of that can feel crushing. We think, well, how do we cope with this knowledge of hell 
when an unbelieving loved one dies? Well, we do not know for sure where someone stood with God when we died. We simply don't know that for sure. Remember the thief on the cross who received Jesus in his final moments? We are not God. We are not the judge. Those who have died, we need to leave to God knowing that he will do what is right. What about the living, though? How do we cope with that? How do we cope with knowing that millions of people around us are going to hell, heading for hell at the moment, and they need to hear about Jesus? How do we cope with that? How can we sort of go about normal life knowing that? How can we go to Shake Shack with the kids or go to the cinema to watch some film or you know, go to the golf driving range when people are heading to hell? I mean, surely we should be out on the streets all the time. Forget the cinema, forget the golf, forget Shake Shack. Let's just get out on the streets and warn people all the time, 24-7. This dilemma is not actually unique to Christians, is it? So, in this present world, there is huge suffering. And in the global village that the world has become, we are very, very aware of it, aren't we? The suffering in the world. How does anybody sit down to their evening meal knowing that people a plane ride away are starving to death? How do we do that? Well, here are three possible responses. One is just ignore it. Just sort of bury our heads in the sand and ignore it. Second one is to be crushed by it. Try to save everyone in the world and be totally overwhelmed. And you end up in a kind of insanity where you're so focused on saving the world that our own lives, our own families just fall apart. Option three is to live whole lives doing what we can with the opportunities and resources that we have. To be asking, well, who are the people that God has brought into my life? As has been said, one person can't change the world But maybe I can change the world for one person. Or maybe a few more than that. As Paul said, that by all means, I might save some. As Christians, we are not to bear the weight of the world on our shoulders. That's God's job. We're not the saviour of the world. Jesus is. But instead, we are to reach out with love and compassion in lives of sustainable sacrifice. Well, let's pause to reflect on what we've heard and then we're going to join together in prayer.